the Quaredev Midcast with your host Adam Matwatch. Uh, so let's jump into our guests because who we have today. We have today two testing legends, Michael Bolton and James Bach. James Bach is a founder uh, of Context Driven School of Testing. He created and teaches the rapid software testing methodology. Uh, Michael Bolton is a consultant, software tester, and testing teacher who helps people to solve testing problems that they didn't realize they could solve. And he also become a, became a co-author with James Bach uh, of the rap, rapid software testing, right? Um, as you could hear from, already from Michael, Michael is having uh, a class uh, online uh, very soon for Euro time zone, but uh, James also have his classes online. And in a moment, I will also share a link with you. So you will have the whole list of the online workshops held by Michael and James, which you can have um, uh, online. On a personal note, uh, I'm really glad that I can see Michael again because uh, I met him actually two years ago on Eurostar, which I highly recommend as a, as a conference. They don't pay me anything. <laughs> they are not a sponsor of today. I just really love Eurostar. And there we had a brief, great discussion, which actually changed a little bit the way I think about testing. So that's one of the reasons why I'm really glad to have uh, these two um, guys today um, as a as a guest, uh, and I'm really honored that you took my invitation and joined me today. And uh, two disclaimers. Uh, disclaimer no number one, uh, I'm really stressed about today because this is my first meetup and podcast uh, recorded. So if I will make any mistakes, any technical problems, please forgive me. It's my first time. And second disclaimer, there is a free beer as on every meetup. Just uh, grab it from the fridge, right? And, uh, and you, can, uh, you, you can have it, right? As on every so without further ado, uh, I will now uh, turn on the possibility um, to, un uh, to for you to unmute yourself. So uh, now we can jump to Michael and uh, James. If you want to say a little bit more about you or your workshop, that's fine. Or we can already jump to the to the topics uh, the, the, to the topic that we have today. Let's do content. Yeah, starting with let's Michael. Let's go for that. Um, we're excited to be here ourselves, Adam, and I'd like to thank you for that very gracious uh, introduction. Uh, although I do have one uh, minor objection, which is uh, I, I, I changed your, the way you think about testing only a little? <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, you changed it so much that actually I was thinking that testing is just a phase in my life and right now I'm, I, I'm completely devoted into testing because I think it might be really, really interesting um, thing for uh, direction for development, right? So, uh, so before that testing was just like a boring check. I was mo mostly focused on the checking part, right? Checking documentation, checking stuff, if stuff is implemented based on the documentation. And I didn't think uh, of it as uh, something that is, um, can be so creative. Uh, so uh, need so much of thinking by, by, by and, and uh, might be very, uh, very creative way of, of, of work, right? So, so yeah, it was really inspiring for me. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to, to hear you say that because we need people like you. We need people who uh, uh, are bringing that energy and that passion uh, uh, back to the craft. Um, in particular, I think because of something that I've, I've been noticing lately that worries me a lot. Uh, part of it's very positive, uh, but part of it is, is cause for concern. The part that uh, I'm talking about is an increasing tendency 
of uh, testers and testing to be focused on one aspect of uh, uh, testing. And it's an important aspect to be sure. It is the confirmatory process associated with uh, what we call in our, our agile rapid testing uh, grid, uh, the discipline frame. The kind of testing that uh, we do as a, a development group when we are trying to help uh, uh, check to make sure that what we're building is what we think we're building. And that is the land of uh, confirmatory, fairly shallow, that's not meant to be an insult. It's, it, 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 when I say shallow testing, I don't mean that to be insulting because shallow testing is valuable um, in terms of, of helping us to be sure that what we're building is at least reasonably close to what we intended to build. But there is a kind of testing that I think is getting uh, pushed aside. It's always had a, a, a difficulty to some degree, but I think it, it, it's being uh, exaggerated even more than it traditionally has. And that is the kind of testing that we do to find deep or rare or hidden or subtle problems in the product that thwart the user's intentions for the product. That first kind of testing that I was talking about is testing associated with the builder's intention for the product. But there's this other kind of testing, uh, which is uh, kind of more comprehensive, more oriented towards uh, the entirety of the uh, uh, user's experience of the product. And there's all kinds of uh, uh, issues associated with that, but the one that got me has been getting me grumpiest lately is the idea of uh, this being manual testing. And I was having a conversation with a, a tester in uh, at a conference, I think it was about this time last year, a little earlier. And uh, I'd had conversations with people um, about the notion of uh, doing the kind of testing that is direct interactive. I remember having a, a, a pleasant conversation with uh, Ilary, who is also uh, in on this call, uh, about that. Um, and she was talking about, well, there's, there's this automated testing that we do, and I, oh dear, uh, and manual testing that we do, and I, oh, because testing isn't automated or manual. Nobody goes to an automated doctor. Uh, nobody reads manual journalism. Uh, uh, there's no such thing as manual research or automated research. These things are all um, uh, uh, people in those domains use tools and it's unremarkable that they do. Uh, it's normal, it's expected for them to be using tools and, and for them to be using sometimes very powerful tools. So the automated manual distinction bugged me and then all of a sudden it hit me that what this tester was talking about doing, what she was talking about was a kind of testing wherein she gets hands-on, interactive, direct experience of the product. But it's not the hands part that's important. It's the experiential part that's important. And so I was very excited by that um, uh, little epiphany that what we're really talking about in, in that kind of uh, uh, domain 
is uh, uh, what I thought would be a decent substitute for what uh, uh, people call manual testing. A better way of thinking about it would be experiential testing, getting actual experience with the product, of the product. Now, as so often happens when I've got an idea that I'm particularly excited about, I, I, I contacted James pretty shortly thereafter, and I knew I must be on to something because James bought into it pretty much right away. And he says, you know, that's so important that we're going we're gonna to add that to our definition of testing. At that time, our definition of testing was evaluating a product by learning about it through exploration and experimentation. And so excited was James by this that we, we shifted it not only to add the experiential part of it, but to uh, put it at the beginning. So we now say, and we've adapted our, our uh, 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 testing and checking refined uh, blog post to say that testing is evaluating a product by learning about it through experiencing, exploring, and experimenting, which includes a whole bunch of other stuff besides uh, uh, studying the product, observing it, questioning it, uh, thinking critically about it, performing risk analysis on it, lots of et cetera's that, that follow on after that. Well, this idea has been on the stove for uh, a little while and it's been bubbling and percolating and so on. And in the last uh, a few weeks, uh, we've become more and more engaged by this idea. And we decided as we often do to go deeper on it. And this is the part where James will pick up the story and talk about uh, um, uh, how we began to delve into analysis of what experiential testing actually means to us. Yeah, that, the, the, the James and Michael difference in this industry, <laughs> what we do that's different than other people do is we don't like to let words just sit there as vague concepts that other people kind of understand, or maybe they don't. We like to delve into these things and say, what do we really mean by that? So we basically behave as philosophers in the best sense of that idea. So we've been breaking down what does experiencing really mean? And that's content that we realize now is there's a lot to it. And uh, we've been asked to uh, focus on uh, talking about this in a podcastable way. So I'm going to generally avoid visuals, although I do have one diagram I can show you that might um, uh, uh, elucidate this. But let me just lay out for you some of the elements of experience so that we're not just talking about something vague. And then Hillary... And so that we can, and so we can emphasize and, why it's important. Right. Sorry. And so Hillary and, and Roman and Hype and some of the rest of you that I know can begin to dissect it in the way that you guys do, which will help us then, will feedback and help us. So first of all, we have the product because the product is what we're experiencing. And then we have the tester. The tester is doing the experiencing. Now that's easy enough. The first, the first uh, non-obvious thing that I want to introduce into this is the concept of uh, 
a transmission medium, uh, a uh, the the field in which you are doing uh, the observing of the product and the interacting of the product, and to to make that simple, let's call it filters. Because whatever the thing is, whatever the medium is by which you are interacting with the product, that is filtering the data from the product and it's filtering your reactions back to the product. So let's say you you have a, a, a product that you are using, a web uh, product, and you're using this product um, uh, on the screen in front of you on your desktop computer. Uh, in one sense, you could say that's an unfiltered experience. You are using the product exactly, let's just say, it's the sort of product that you're using exactly as it was intended to be used. Now compare that with, with um, uh, talking to someone who is trying to use the product. And you're on the, you're on the telephone and you're talking to your mother or something so someone who, the canonical person who's not technical or not as technical as you and they're having some problem for me it will be my wife and if if she accidentally clicks in the wrong place then she'll make her toolbar go away in outlook and then she can't use her computer anymore until i tell her what to click on so that she gets her magic commands back and she doesn't even want to learn how to do this herself. She's, she's, she likes making jewelry. She doesn't like operating computers. She's not a computer person at all. So all her life, she's resisted learning this. She went so extreme that instead of learning how to manage her own computing experience, she gave birth to a human who does that for her. And my son is her principal source of technical support. She created a whole human because she didn't want to do her own tech support. That's how extreme she got. Um, so that means that if we're talking to her, we're saying, well, okay, now do you see this on the screen? Now, do, you have the, do you see a shape that looks like a little chevron? Uh, can you try to, to move your mouse pointer over and click on that? Now what do you see? So if you were working in that way, you are filtered from the direct experience of the product. You are still experiencing the product but you are experiencing it indirectly. And there are some aspects of what the product is doing that you will not see because they've been filtered out by the transmission medium. In this case, the transmission medium being the person who is between you and the product. But when you so-called automate your, uh, your tests, you automate your checks, you are also filtering out the experience of the product. And we think that not enough people are paying attention to what you lose when you are working through a scripted interface instead of directly interacting with the product. So that's filters. So think about all the different things that filter. And, and I would say that, that, that I define uh, an um, uh, indirect uh, experience, or I should say... Um, uh, I would uh, I would define a, a uh, the 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 directness of ex the experience as um, the degree to which you are having an experience of the product which is unmediated by any external tool or agent. 
an external means external to the product. So for instance, if you have a, a product which is designed to be mediated by a, a human, for instance, a tool that's used by an agent at an airline to talk to you about your airline seat. Uh, in that case, it's designed to be used by the agent, not by you. So when you're talking to the agent, that's an unmediated product experience between you and that agent, because that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to look at the screen of the agent. So what I mean by, by a filtered experience or an indirect experience is something outside the product, outside the intended use of the product, which has come between you and that use so that you no longer are having a naturalistic experience. You're having an artificial, uh, contrived experience of the product. And, and now you have to work through that filter. Can I jump on here with one question? Go ahead. Is it, is it only filtering or is it also generating? Because what I can imagine is when you have a filter, so external person or part of documentation or script, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, wouldn't this also be possible that this external filter might generate new ideas how to use well, the product? If I had the ability to share my screen, which you have stopped me from doing, I could show you a diagram that would answer that question very well. Okay. Just give me a second. I will see how, what, what I can do. Okay. Um, so, um, yes, good question. The answer is yes. And I have a diagram that actually explains, uh, uh, has that on it, uh, which, which, uh, um, elucidates a lot of this stuff. So yes, it's not just filtering. The reason why I say filter is, is to simplify it because what, what Michael and I originally had is we had uh, medium or media or mediation and we felt that that was too abstract uh, so far we're feeling that that's too abstract because we think of media in a very deep way uh, uh, we follow the work of Marshall McLuhan and his work on media um, and uh, if I now I can do it here we go so you'll see, if you look at this, this is a diagram that uh, was inspired by uh, conversations with Hilary uh, Agurter, who's with us, uh, years ago. Uh, uh, Hilary said that he wanted to become an expert in observation, and I decided to try to outdo him on that as best I could. So I, did a, I decided to do a deep analysis of what does observation mean, and what you see is, you see an object field and an observer field and a transmission medium. I went all super philosophical here. And I, I noticed that uh, focus matters, that you, if you're going to observe something, you have to focus on it. Now notice that the focus can cause you to ignore certain things, but the focus and the medium can generate things that weren't in the original. So that, I mean, if you just look at a planet through the atmosphere, the atmosphere itself might be glowing because of, uh, of cosmic rays breaking up in the atmosphere. And so you have, have extra information coming to you that's not about that planet. It's not just a filter, but it's also adding noise, distortion. Um, uh, so there's a bunch of things. It could amplify 
your 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 interface could amplify what you see it could transform what you see or it could filter so an argument could be made that that testing something via a script although it filters the experience it amplifies certain aspects of that experience which is a good thing the uh the person could argue that because i'm 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 scripting my uh my checks uh i'm able to capture everything and i'm able to capture even the tiniest little things that a human would miss so that's not entirely a bad thing is it that we have a filtered experience no it's not a bad thing um but you have to understand that it is a different thing and because it's different you might uh uh, you might miss something uh, with that different experience than you otherwise uh, would not miss. Now, uh, uh, once you once we, we we realize that there's very direct experiences and then there's somewhat indirect and then very indirect experiences, we need to look at this. We need to turn this around and look at it from a very different point of view. Because setting that aside, there's another huge thing going on which is that an experience of a product is very different depending on the internal state of the tester who is doing the experiencing. So you can have exactly the same data flowing past your eyes, flowing through your senses that somebody else does, but you can have a totally different reaction to it. Um, and this can be lead to bizarre things. Uh, I have had the experience uh, which really really shocked me where my wife gave me something to drink and i thought that what she gave me was unsweetened peppermint tea but what she actually gave me was uh lemon hot hot lemon juice with honey in it so it was this sweet kind of lemonade which is delicious but I thought I was going to get unsweetened peppermint tea. So I took a sip of the hot lemon and what it tasted like to me was poison. It tasted to me like there was soap or something that got into the mug, a motor oil. It just tasted like it was totally wrong. And I spit it out and I said, oh my God, what, what happened? And then she said, oh, it's, it's hot lemon. And then I tasted it again, and it tasted delicious. The weird thing is that my internal state had prepared me to taste that cool peppermint. And uh, all it basically said to me was, this is not peppermint. <laughs> and so it's dangerous. It's very strange, because you think you have a direct connection to your senses. But I learned in that moment that I don't have a direct connection to my senses, that my senses have this, this stage of set the expectations and that actually changes what I think that I taste. And, you know, that's, that's kind of disturbing to learn that about, you know, our human bodies, that, that they work that way. But that's what tipped me off, that um, depending on your expectations, depending on your uh, your memories, depending on your internal mental state, your experience of the product will be very different than it might be otherwise. The one big thing that I learned as a test manager is if a tester is bored, 
they will do terrible testing. You cannot do excellent testing if you're bored, unless you're intentionally trying to test what happens when a bored person uses your product. But I think a tester's mind needs to be alert, energetic, and sharp, or you will just ignore the bugs that pass by your eyes. And your experience of the product will be, oh, it's pretty good. But someone else with sharper eyes and more ambition and more energy, who's maybe more caffeinated or whatever, is going to say, oh, look at this. This is a problem, and this is a problem, and this is a problem. And then you look at it again, and you realize, oh, I guess it's not as good as I, as I thought it was. And, you know, that has played out with you and me, James, in the, in the past, because uh, I have often been uh, pairing with you as we test something to prepare for an RSTA or something. And uh, you, in those moments, are focused on doing something related to driving the product with a, with a particular tool. And in so doing, you will notice all kinds of things that are important to uh, toolsmiths and people who are uh, preparing uh, checks or people who are attempting to gather data. Meanwhile, I'm standing, you know, in front of my computer going, ah, ah look what I, uh, look what's going right by your eyes because your focus is different. So there's a, a not just a um, anticipation and not just desire exactly, but also a kind of intention um, for uh, what the product and what the testing is, is focused on. And okay, clearly, that, I've said something added, that's so important that you've just taken a note on it. Yeah, I've just added that to our, because it wasn't in our outline. But the builder mentality versus the tester mentality changes your experience of the product. And another uh, example of that is I've, uh, although Michael comes from a tech support background, I found when I moved tech support people over into the testing, my test team when I was at Apple, that um, at first, tech support people have trouble noticing bugs because they see the bugs and they immediately find a workaround and then they shrug and say, well, there's a workaround and they never report the bug. <laughs> They're focused on finding solutions instead of complaining about problems. And it's just a mindset from, from tech support that they have to overcome, which doesn't take them very long, but it's an example of how your internal state uh, affects things. And what I have had on my list uh, that we're eventually going to write about is energetic versus fatigued, sensitive versus numb, certainty versus doubt and confusion, curiosity versus disinterest, confidence versus nervousness. Um, and a side note here, if I have brand new testers or amateur testers helping me test, I know I need to get them pumped up that they can find an important bug. Because one of the problems with, with young testers or inexperienced testers is they say to themselves, oh, I probably won't find a bug because who am I? I'm just a guy who uh, nobody cares about and uh, I don't have any special expertise in this product. If the, if the experts haven't found a bug in this, surely I won't find a bug in this. So we have to get them over that attitude. So I like to pump them up, give them a pep talk, and, and tell them stories about how, yes, you can. You can find the critical bug today that everyone else has missed. It can happen. James worked with different tech support people than I did 
Um, <laughs> uh, James, you remember Carla Fisher? Uh, she, uh, uh, she was a tech support person too, just like me. Uh, it, I think it might have something to do with company culture because our tech support people were seized on the idea of, uh, uh finding bugs and finding problems. We were aware of workarounds, but what we mostly wanted to do is, uh, um, get excited about finding those kinds of problems. Well, so yeah, at, I mean, it just goes to show that, 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 you know, mindset, uh, uh, matters. So let me just reel off a few of the, uh, the rest of the elements that are currently on, on the outline that Michael and I are working on. And we're working this into a series of diagrams. So we've got tester and product. We have filters or between them or the medium in which that the, they are experiencing this. We have the senses, sight, sound, touch, smell. We have norms. Uh, in other words, uh, norms are what are what is it that is supposed to happen, and depending on what are the norms are, your experience will be different of the product. You will react differently to what you see. You'll be sensitive to different things. So uh, the business domain, knowledge of the business domain, knowledge of what is what should happen, what probably will happen, uh, are, are all part of that and affect your experience and affect what surprises you. Other people are part of your experience because either because you're simulating a, a user, but you're not a user. I mean, you're simulating a customer, but you're not a customer. Um, or other people who aren't testers or who are testers that you have to talk to while you're doing this. Rhythm and tempo strongly affect the nature of your experience. So if you're very rushed, as in many DevOps situations, they want to rush the testers. Oh, quick, quick, quick. We have to get this out. There's another uh, build coming. There's another build coming. So that uh, you have to be really fast. And then you try to test really fast, and you're going to miss a lot of things that you, if you had just sat with it a little longer, you would have said, wait a minute, this is a problem. But you know, I only had five minutes or I only had an hour and I needed six hours to really understand what this was going to feel like. And then, of course, they say, well, if you can't test this fast then we have to automate it. Well, now you're not getting the experience at all. The machine isn't going to do something differently if you run the automation 100 times over and over and over again. But the human will feel a lot differently. If you have the same experience a hundred times, you'll start to notice things about that experience that you wouldn't have noticed otherwise. Uh, Let me jump on that one, James. Uh, I'm sorry, but do you know how, um, do, do you have ideas how to deal with that? Because that's a common problem, which I actually personally uh, have seen uh, very often. Just before the closing of the sprint, uh, there are developers saying, okay, guys, you need to close all of these tickets, test them, right? Because we have closing in two hours and we have to close everything. Um, yeah. And during the closing, if they are not closed, they, there is this um, uh, always notion, okay, uh, we have finished all the work, but the testers did it, te done the testing. But That's ridiculous. Right. Well, I, I, I get upset about that because we have finished all the work. Well, wait a second. Who says you finished all the work? Right. So what Michael is demonstrating is assertiveness. And what a lot of what we do is teach testers to be assertive and to in order to be successfully assertive, you need to have credibility. So you've got to develop your credibility. 
age automatically helps you develop your credibility or if you're illery you grow a wicked beard and that develops your credibility uh and uh, i have a little beard but his beard is very intimidating compared to mine and so he uses that i use my thick glass frames my glasses cause people to assume that i'm smart um a stern uh, so, voice uh they're 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 stern Confident a, a, vocabulary. Yeah. This is yeah. one reason why Michael and I work on our vocabulary so much because we are silently communicating to people who don't read our biography that we know what we're talking about because we use words in precise and powerful ways. And if anyone stops us and say, what do you mean by that? We could give you a 10 minute lecture on what we mean by that. So this creates uh, the ability for us to, to, to say what the real work is. Because what you're saying, Adam, is that these people running this project, they've decided what real work is and what isn't real work. And all I'm saying is, is depending on how much credibility and influence you have, you, you are part of the decision about what is the real work and what needs to be done and what doesn't need to be done. Testers need to get involved in that they have to know how to get involved in that and they have to have the credibility to be listened to. Otherwise, people just think testing is uh, just po poetry. Uh, you're just writing poetry. Are you finished writing your well, poetry yet? Not, not even writing poetry, but, but performing a script that somebody else wrote. Uh, and that speaks to a question that Andrea is asking in the, uh, in the Slido, which is how do you pump the junior testers up? And my, my answer to that would be, you don't have to. Just stop deflating them. Well, <laughs> Stop deflating think, them by uh, I, I giving think them somebody can. else's ideas to act on. I think there are specific things. But amongst them is, you know, yeah, stop, stop slashing their tires. That would be helpful. But, but once you have patched the tires, there are some things you can do to pump them up. And one of them is tell stories. Tell a specific story. Uh, for instance, I tell a story about a tester who it was his first project and on his first day working with me at ST Labs in 1997, he said, oh, I've heard of you, James Bach. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to find more bugs than you, than you will find. Uh, I'm going to compete with the great James Bach. And it was his first day testing and I'd been testing for 10 years. So I said, oh. I can't let this kid find more bugs than me, so I, I, I was trying to, to impress him. But during that project, in the week that followed, he found two bugs that I didn't find. Even though I looked at the same screens he looked at, and I saw the same things he saw, but he noticed two things that I didn't notice. And I thought that was so fascinating that... I could stare at the same thing he could stare at, and I just didn't notice something. And I, I'll, I'll even tell you exactly what it was. It was a fish that was on a screen, and the fish was on a scale. It was a kid's game. And he noticed that the heavier fishes, somebody is unmuted, and I'm not sure who it is, um, but it's the... Nobody on camera. Yeah, okay. Um he noticed that the heavier fish would cause the scale to go down and be depressed, but the fish would remain suspended in the air 
on some screens, but on other screens, the heavier fish in this kid's game would move down and be on top of that scale. So I saw the same thing where the fish was moving up and down sometimes and other times the scale was moving up and down and the fish wasn't. I saw the same screens, but I didn't notice that inconsistency. I just looked at it and said, there's a fish, there's a scale, it's fine. And it was, it was fascinating to me that he would notice that and I wouldn't. And it caused me to say to myself, literally any tester in the world can teach me about testing without even trying to teach me about testing. I don't need to work with people who are better testers than me. I don't need to work with people who are more educated than I am. I can work with anyone and they can do something better than what I do. And I can take that as a lesson if that's my attitude. So I tell this story to new testers. I say, you might teach me an important lesson about testing that I am going to turn into a story or a, or a presentation that I'll make a bunch of money on and you won't. <laughs> but you could be the next lesson giver in my career. And I know that, but you don't yet know that. And I want to tell you so that you realize how important you are to me uh, in my education. That's one thing that I do to pump young testers up. Now you have to, to be credible, you have to tell a specific story of how a new tester taught you a lesson, maybe without meaning to, or maybe with meaning to, but, but you, you've got to tell stories like that, and then they go, oh, really? So maybe, maybe I'll win the lottery of wisdom, and then it turns out that I have some kind of special power that will, that will be helpful to people on the team. Oh, that's exciting. Another thing to tell people to pump them up is to tell them a story about a junior tester who screwed up but it was okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and that's important too. And I, and I have some, some, you know, funny stories about that. And I like to use stories about myself, stories where I screwed up and I learned from it and it was okay. So I make sure they've heard some stories about that. I make sure they've heard stories about the other kinds of things and, and that gets them pumped up. Um, I see a question here from Premislav. What if your product is a service and you make changes to the product to products of others? Deep knowledge of, oh, and it disappeared all of a sudden. Uh, deep knowledge of the product is not is often not possible then. I'm not sure if I understand what you mean by yeah, so maybe, maybe let me let me explain. So I uh, I have a product, yeah, that it's made, in, uh, made changes in the product of others. Uh, I mean, we are grabbing a, a homepage and make uh, changes there. So a bunch of uh, people will have uh, one version of product, the other um, uh, people will get the second version of product, yeah. But uh, the problem is there that we don't know all the small details um, on the client side that we can screw up doing the changes yeah and uh, in such in such way uh, there is no possibility to to get that knowledge yeah because no one will spend with us i don't know days months to explain how exactly this 
uh, this page is working, yeah? But still, we need to make this, uh, the, um, the uh, changes on the pages uh, and uh, do not screw up the whole flow, yeah? How so, do you know what changes you need to make? I mean, sometimes they are very small, like change the color of the button, yeah? But sometimes they are big enough, like uh, changing the form, like form has um, 25 question before the client go to the another panel we just make the two questions from that 20 yeah so uh, a lot of time this is a mix of guessing uh, um, and balancing on i don't know experience of the of the qas that we have on, on the board but uh, it's not always uh, possible to, to 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 have deep knowledge about about product yeah to, to well it, it's not always possible to have deep knowledge of the product but the question is how do you feel about that are you okay with not having uh, a deep knowledge about it? Of course not. If you are, go ahead. But be prepared for the risk that you'll be clobbered by something where deeper knowledge is more necessary. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So I mean, what, no. what we're saying, what we're saying is that that this is an important issue. Whether you can resolve it or not, you know, is a different matter. Uh, I just learned a term the other day called. Uh, adversarial interoperability maybe some of you have heard of this adversarial interoperability is when your product has to work with another product that doesn't want you to work with it <laughs> like if you're if you're scraping screens of a competitor or something like that um, and they they keep changing their product to uh, to stop your product from working uh, I used to have a product which downloaded all the 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 emails that were part of uh, Yahoo groups, uh, but it wasn't a product produced by Yahoo. It was a third-party product, so Yahoo kept changing its way that it was uh, its web interface, which was what was being scraped, in order to uh, for this other tool to work. So I'd have to keep getting updates from this other product. With adversarial interoperability, you have a similar kind of, of, of situation where there are forces and there's information that you, you don't have access to, certain experiences that you, that you can't have, and yet you have to work with the product anyway. Uh, so it's a problem, and the, one of the things we have to do is acknowledge the problem and make sure that if it's a risk that we can't get around that we just make sure that that the risk is identified and 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 within our project and that the people don't expect our testing to to solve an, an unsolvable problem in other words that we notify the client of the uh of this situation and and help the client to recognize the limitations of what our testing is this is why when i'm teaching the class i contend that there are two important questions for testers to be having running as a, a demon, a background process, a, a, a constantly running. These two questions that are constantly on your mind. One is looking down at the product, looking down at your experience with the product and asking yourself, is there a problem here? Is there a problem here? Is there a problem here? The other question that I believe must be on testers' mind all the time is it takes a form of imagining that your client is watching you, 
uh, standing there over your shoulder, looking at what's happening with the product and looking at your engagement with the product, things that are getting in the way of your testing, slowing your testing down, making your testing harder, and asking the client and, and all of our clients as, as testers, asking, are you okay with this? Are we okay with this? Because if my client is okay with an obstacle that I'm banging up against, I, I can be okay with it too. Uh, I'll do my best to get around it. But if my client says, no, it's, it's okay, don't worry about that, that's fine. Well, we'll just live the, with it. Yeah, we'll live with it. At the same time, there is a kind of implicit contract with the client that you're not going to hold it against me if there's a bug in this that I was not able to find because of this constraint that I have. Yeah. And it seems to me that testers are pretty bad, actually, a lot of the time at getting that out in front of people so that they can see it and yeah. recognize it and deal with this, it. This is all part of a general family of things called testability problems. And testability advocacy and testability analysis are part of your job. Uh, Michael, can we deal with the how to fight with burnout question? I'd like to tackle that. Yeah, let, let's go, James. Go ahead. Uh, burnout is, a, is an important topic to me because before I was 30 years old, I'm 54 now, uh, but before I was 30 years old, I twice experienced severe burnout to the point where I could not work. Uh, at one point, it was so severe that anytime I sat down at my keyboard to write software, I would want to throw up. I would feel physically nauseated. Now, this is when you were how developing. severe it was. That was before I was a tester. Hmm. Um, that was when I was, uh, my only skill was writing software and I didn't want to write software anymore. I was so sick of it. Um, I didn't understand when I was that young, uh, this was when I was 20 years old, I didn't understand what causes burnout. Uh, I didn't understand how to fix it. But with the help of Jerry Weinberg, uh, who I consider to be uh, my teacher, when I say, who's my teacher, I just say Jerry Weinberg. I've had many teachers, but the one who stands up above all of them is, is Jerry Weinberg. Um, with, through his books and then through his training and then through personal friendship, uh, he taught me how never to be burned out again. And I have not experienced the symptoms of burnout since I was 28 years old. Uh, I solved it. With his help, I solved it. And um, so I'm excited about, about this kind of a question. One thing I learned is I was burning out because I didn't understand what nutrients that my mind and my soul needed. And I, I learned uh, that I need social interaction, that if I don't have enough social interaction, I just wither away and I become depressed and... I don't want to do anything. So I need a certain set of vitamins. And I've learned over time what those vitamins are. I need time and space to, to think. I need, uh, I need lots of free time. Um, I, I need uh, uh, also to feel that I'm respected and that I'm helping people. If I don't feel like I'm helping people, then I, I don't want to do anything. So I'm very socially active, activated. Once I learned that, 
then I was able to create the kind of work and the kind of job for myself that keeps me constantly energized. Uh, in the midst of all this, one specific thing that I do to keep myself from being burned out is I help young people. I almost feel like a vampire soaking in their life energy. Uh, but uh, lots of people come to me for free help. And I always say yes. The only time I ever say no is when I am super busy on a deadline or when I feel like I really can't help somebody because they're too different from me or they're, or they're frustrating me and I'm just getting angry with them. Once in a while, I, I encounter people like that. I just say, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't think I can help you. Go try Michael Bolton. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then we'll see what happens there. Um, but usually I'm able to help, and it just gives me nourishment. So if I'm feeling down or unenergized on something, and then somebody comes to me and says, can you help me with this testing problem? And I find I can write a little code for them or do a little demo for them. After spending an hour with them, I often feel happy, light, like I can, I can solve things, that I can do things, that my work and my life are meaningful. And then I can turn back to the thing that I was supposed to be working on, and I feel like I can do it now instead of just staring into space. So um, pay attention to the vitamins and minerals of your soul. Pay attention to the energy coming in and then the energy you're putting out and take that seriously because once you the key thing is you've got to learn to listen to the little voice in your head which i didn't realize all through my 20s was screaming at me but i was just ignoring it i was ignoring that voice the voice was saying don't take on anymore don't say yes to that guy don't do that i was so ambitious i was just saying yes to every article anyone wanted me to write i would just say yes and I learned to say to say no for the same reason that you learn to sleep at night <laughs> instead of staying up all night. If you try to stay up all night and don't sleep, you quickly, your body teaches you why that's not going to work. And, uh, and similarly, your spirit will teach you if you listen. And if you don't listen, you begin to experience, or at least I did, physical symptoms of unhealth that stem from psychological needs that I wasn't that I wasn't meeting. So that's my little rant on avoiding burnout. Uh, so oh, oh, let me let me give you a specific thing right now. If you're feeling that you're burned out on testing, then one thing that you can do is mentor someone else, or Go find a colleague like Michael or myself, because we're, we're the kind of colleagues we like when people come to us. Uh, not everyone does, but we do. Uh, find a colleague that you can talk to about your testing ideas, and you will start to feel like, wow, I know a lot, and my ideas matter. I think Roman is a good example of this. Roman is here with us. I've noticed that Roman is very active in the... Uh, in the, the, the RST forum and I the reason why I know your name Roman and I have trouble remembering anyone's name uh, is because your contributions have been really insightful and useful for me to see on our slack channel so I'm really happy that whatever else you do with your time that you spend some of your time trying to help us make sense of testing
great experience reports from uh, from Roman on the RST Slack forum. Incidentally, if there are people who have been uh, uh, following RST for a while and who have taken the class, um, and you are not in the RST Slack forum, uh, that was an initiative that uh, uh, started in uh, 2017, I think, uh, at Hillary's uh, uh, nudging. And uh, uh, so people who were not participants in RST class, or who were participants in RST classes before that time may not be aware of it. So uh, drop me a line, uh, michael at developsense.com. And uh, if you are an RST alumnus, uh, this is a, a place for you. Yeah, and Michael and I try all our new ideas out on, on the friendly people on the forum before we go to the hostile people who are beyond the forum. <laughs> I, I just don't want to claim credit for uh, something that I have not done. It was actually in the class, but it was this one guy from the UK that initiated it. It was not my idea. Oh. Ah. Okay. Well, we'll stop giving you any credit then. Jeez. Yeah, really. Holy <laughs> Thank you for that, guys. Uh, I think we can jump to the next question, especially to get back on track of uh, experiential trusting, uh, testing. The question is regression testing with experiential testing. Some products have a long support time. How to make sure that the features are still working uh, and do not get bored? And All right. it's well, a little bit connected with the burnout, right? Because at some point, yeah, it, it, is. Burnout. it is. It is, but it's, uh, it's, it's more localized. Whoever wrote that question, that is a really smart question. That shows that you are really plugged into what we're talking about because it's a really key idea. Whenever you retest anything, you have a different experience of it. And it can be really hard to muster the same energy, the same sensitivity that you had the first time you saw it. So it's something, if you treat your mind as an instrument that you're using to test, that your mind itself is an instrument, then you realize that there's so many things that can blunt the sharp edge of our instrument of our mind while we're testing. So we have to do things to sharpen it. One thing that we do one thing I do is I know I need to bring in other people to, to uh, help me whenever I can to get anyone else who has fresh eyes to take a look at the product and that will help my eyes be fresher. It helps me get re-energized, which is something you can do on an Agile team. I mean, they say that everyone is supposed to be, um, is supposed to be involved in testing. I think that it's important to have testing specialists, but I think getting other people to say, hey, everybody, let's get in and, and, and re-experience this product. Let's help each other by being in the same room at the same time or on the same Zoom chat, and let's just call out anything that's annoying us or anything that's surprising us as we all use the product together for the next hour. That can be a way that you can, you can avoid the boredom uh, problem. Uh, another what's thing what's that some I, other way, you, Michael, that you can think of? Another thing that I do is uh, I have a background in theater. And so uh, a part of what I do um, from my own perspective is I, I try to assume a different identity. I try to uh, prime myself with ideas about how people might use this. This appeals, James, to the uh, dimension of um, uh, what's the one on the uh, on our uh, list there? Um, I suppose in a sense it's norms, 
uh, for uh, various people who would experience the product in different ways. I try to ask it's other myself, people simulated role. Right. So I try to ask myself, what would it be like for other people? But then there's another thing, which is I am different from one day to the next. Uh, I approach the product in a different mood and with a different set of motivations. Uh, I can always bring to the uh, experience of the product a different kind of focus on uh, different dimensions of coverage. Um, I might choose to uh, uh, interact with the product in terms of um, uh, uh, throwing a variety of different data at it or thinking about different operational circumstances or uh, trying to use the product through different interfaces. Um, all those things are, are ways in which I can stir the pot. Um, there's, a, a, there's another dimension to it though, and that is setting myself free. Setting myself free not to do the same damned thing over and over and over again. I don't know where people got the idea that change, the way to address change-related risk is to run exactly the same test, to perform exactly the same tests that we performed before. For one thing, that's impossible. We can never perform exactly the same test as we performed before because it's never again uh, going to be this time on this day, uh, 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 this week, this month in history. It's never going to be that. So it's always going to be a different test to some degree. Um, but uh, I studiously avoid doing the same things over and over again because I think it's silly. <laughs> Um, if something is, uh, if something can be checked in that way, if, if something can be checked via an automated process, then give it to an automated process to check. I have but, a quick demo that underscores this point, Michael. I, 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 you may have uh, of, uh, seen this before, uh, yeah, but yeah. a lot of people haven't. There's a, there is a game online called Sporkle. And I'm sharing it right now on my screen, a, a, one of the variations of the Sporkle game. And, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to name all of the countries of Africa as fast as I can. And as you see, as I name them, as I type them in, uh, they fill in on the screen. Right? Now, this is a strangely addicting game. <laughs> now, think about it. If the game is just type 54 countries as fast as you can, that's pretty boring. If you just give me the list of the 54 countries and say type this list, wow, that's really boring. That's, follow, that's what it's like for me to follow a script. But if you don't give me a script and instead you say from memory type all 54 countries as fast as you can, that's somehow much more intellectually engaging. Now, I've experimented with this game where I got, at first I didn't know all 54 countries in Africa, but then I got better and better at it. And um, I found that I started setting myself special challenges to keep myself interested in the game. For instance, specify the countries starting at the top and going down row by row. Uh, specify them, specify, specify themselves, north, do it north to south, do it east to west. Alphabetical do order. Viral. Do it in alphabetical order. Uh, do a hypothetical uh, salesman's tour through every country and just do them all adjacent countries, and you still have to do it within the time span. Now, do another population. Each of these is just 
typing 54 countries. So you could say it's just a script. But what I'm doing is I'm doing it a different way every time and I'm engaging my mind to get to do certain to do it in certain sub-challenging ways. But the other thing that's really important is Sporkle is keeping track of my coverage. I want my tool that I'm testing, I want the product that I'm testing to keep track of my coverage instead of me having to keep track of my coverage. So part of how you can do do um, uh, regression testing but keep it fresh is to challenge somebody in 30 minutes to visit every major feature of the product and then score them by looking at a log file and say well according to the log file you missed these five features and then they go ah oh. well now I'll test them now I'll do those five features but next time I'm gonna get all those things in 30 minutes and then you have to do it a different way or in a different order every time so this hey, becomes James, an this, intellectually engaging game. And then you can also ask questions about anomalies too. Like why is West, it's Western Sahara, right? Why is that in gray? I, I think I love what you, sure. yeah. I, I love what you, what, what you have done there, uh, guys, uh, James. Uh, it's, it's, it's called gamification and uh, what uh, one of the, my team members have done actually. And I think it might be, uh, it's a very similar advice which I can give. Uh, during the testing dojo, one of my team members have invented a game, and a game was conduct uh, con uh, was um, was made of like uh, ten or fifteen questions to the system which we were testing, and the questions were about uh, where you can find this and these options, or how you can input data in a way that it will show this and that, and so on and so on. So, and some of these questions, even I, after testing the product uh, for two years, um, and this was a junior tester that have invented this game. After two years of testing this product, I didn't know the answers just straight away. I had to take the product and find my way through the product uh, to find answers for that game. And we gave yes. this, this we gave this quiz to uh, people uh, that participated in the testing dojo. And yes. the additional thing, uh, what was great there, is that everybody have found their own way to find the answer. So it was yes, like right. Everybody was doing my, exactly the same. My right? brother wrote. My brother and I wrote an article about that technique. Uh, my brother calls it open book testing, and he used that technique on the Microsoft Flight Simulator test team uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when he was doing that. And they would have questions like, what are five ways to start the engine of the airplane? And that kind of thing. And uh, just exactly like what you're saying. And so his name for that was open book testing because it's like an open book testing at, a test at school where they give you a test but you can refer to the textbook all you want it's a it's a wonderful technique to 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 keep energy so i i think you your testers onto something and one additional thing is, uh, I'm not sure if you remember, Michael, but some time ago we have had a talk about exploratory tests where you, I, I know that you hate the term exploratory tests. No, no, uh, we don't hate it. We don't, we don't, we don't hate, hate it. it. We just, we just it think anymore. it's obsolete. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so um, uh, it, uh, how we approach exploratory tests in my company is we perform a session and it's actually in your terms, I think it's called session-based testing because we conclude that every two weeks, uh, two, two and a half hour um, uh, session where we take uh, different techniques, different testing techniques, 
different creative techniques um, which we use during these sessions, like uh, tools-based testing, testing personas, and so on and so on, right? Uh, just to not be bored about the product that we use. Because if you use the product every day exactly the same way and so on, you might be bored, you might be burned out, um, and, uh, and you, you, you might uh, not find any new bugs, right? So just to put some creativity on our tests, uh, we, we have done these uh, sessions and every session with different um, style, different technique, different heuristic maybe using during this technique, during this session to test exactly the same product and we always found something in the product. So I, I think that was uh, also a very nice um, and uh, something from which I actually I have changed that in, into a workshop where I learn, teach these, these different creative techniques. So I think it's also a nice idea. Uh, thank you, guys. I think we should move to the next question. Unless, uh, Piotr Wu, do you have any follow-up? Uh, or is it okay to move to the no, next one? Very much. That was, that was a very interesting answer. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I know that there is one that has uh, four likes, but there is one to which you, Michael, have responded directly to Rodrigo Martin. Uh, even true manual and automated testing should be the same. Craft skills are different. What are your thoughts on having this separation in the test organization? And well, I think let, Michael, me, you... let, me, let me get this off my chest because it bugs me intensely. Testing is neither manual nor automated. Testing is neither manual nor automated. Ah! Nobody talks about automated and, and, and manual development. Nobody talks about automated and manual management. These people use tools and it is not exceptional that they use tools. There is one thing that is important, I think, for a testing team to have. And that is the idea of somebody who specializes in creating tools to help other testers. Well, now, uh, for those who have not seen it, uh, it, it might be time for us to uh, uh, point to an important announcement for the testing craft overall that has to do with James's enthusiasm for creating those kinds of tools. Yeah, I, I've been hired by Tricentis as a technical fellow, you know, part-time, but I'm guiding them in a vision for a new concept in test tools that are test tools that support skilled testers instead of test tools that turn you into a uh, an idiot and want you to just push to automate all the test cases. Uh, we have a, a vision of... Uh, what would be tools that would really help testers be smart and encourage testers to use their intellect? Test tools that help you analyze products, tools that help you see things you wouldn't otherwise see, not tools that are trying to get you to turn everything into a script. Um, so I'm very excited about that because the guys at Tricentis that I've that I'm working with are. They're, they believe in this vision, and so we're, we're, we're at the very beginning of building tools about it, but I'm, it's just recently been announced by Tricentis, and so that's what Michael's referring to. Um, it's, uh, here's a, a term. Instead of manual versus automated tester, what I suggest that you say is some testers are coding testers, and some testers are not coding testers. A tester with the skill of writing code is that is interesting. If you have coding skills there's certain things you can do to create tools and manage tools and and that sort of thing. Now remember though that if you don't have coding skills 
that doesn't mean that you are lesser than the people who do have coding skills because speaking as someone who is a coding tester it's a curse as well as a gift because I think like a coder I look at things the way a coder looks at it that means that I don't have certain feelings that normal people have when they see complicated interfaces and and uh, difficult to use software it might look to me like oh that's fine and then my wife tries to use it and she can't even get it started uh, so and then I realize oh um, I guess I was looking testing. at it as a I, yeah I was looking <laughs> at it with coder eyes rather than with with ordinary user eyes so I've learned that I that that people who do other things in their life other than code uh, bring an important vitamin to the testing process that I don't I have a deficiency of because um, as much as I speak against the overuse or wrong use of tools the fact is if you watch me test you'll see that I'm kind of obsessed with tools I'm constantly thinking oh I can write a tool to do that that's where my mind just goes I'm biased but I'm a coding tester so I'm not an automated tester <laughs> I'm a coding tester someone who uses code to help him especially uh, with his testing and someone who is not a coding tester I'm looking for a better word for it non coding is kind of a negative thing to say there's got to be a there should be a positive way to, to say this a liberal arts tester I'm, I'm not sure what to call them an experiential tester an analytical tester a social tester you have seven different kinds James yeah I'm, I'm still I'm, I'm working on what maybe experiential tester I mean but a coding tester is not non-experiential well, how, so it's how about not a, really how about just a tester well, right? gonna, and the coding okay. is like you have a tester and you have a, okay, uh, well, you know, there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, it's just that your question has set us off on our rant about manual and automated and how I think that this cheapens the conversation when you frame it in those terms. And we just think it should be framed in different terms. And we're, and I'm suggesting coding and versus non-coding tester and experiential or the word that I used before experiential testing is interactive sometimes I say experiential or interactive testing naturalistic. Uh, is where or naturalist that's a third word we've used naturalistic software testing where you're in the natural environment of the user uh, rather than in the artificial environment of the coder I I, well, the one thing that the one thing about the question that I didn't answer that I'll answer now in 10 seconds is yes I think a certain separation is important because I think you should have people who are dedicated toolsmiths who are coding testers who specialize in code I love being a toolsmith I love working with toolsmiths uh, but I think that should be a special role rather than everybody being their own toolsmith Thank you for that, James. Thank you, Rodrigo, for the question. And I think it's a, a, a great bridge to the next one. Uh, and I believe it, uh, we, we, we will have only a few more because we don't have 
much time. Uh, so the next one is how to convince business not to go in automate everything more and a specific business arguments, especially, and I can add to that one because when, when I see any uh, job um, job offers, uh, people usually look for people with autom with skills in, in coding, yeah. uh, autom automatic tests and so on. And I, I feel that there is this fetish of business to automate everything to put that's exactly offers. that's exactly what it is it is a fetish, fetish. It, it and the problem with fighting this is that it it hasn't arisen through any research or data or experience there's it's totally speculative it's like someone who says i think that uh we should all become vegetarians and that will make us much better at engineering and you go well really uh, Oh, it's hard to disprove because no one's ever done it <laughs> and done it for long enough. And then, and then even if they did, it would be hard to compare it to not doing it. You'd have to like spend six months eating just meat and six months <laughs> eating just vegetables and somehow compare your output. So it's very hard to disprove since nobody has done it before. There's nobody out there who's automated everything. That doesn't even mean anything. Jeez. Uh, as soon as they say automate everything, I go, what do you mean by everything? Do you mean automate management? So you're going to get rid of all of the CEO and the COO and you're just going to have automated man. Oh, you don't want to automate management. You just want to automate my job. No, you uh, want to not all of my job, just some of my job. Uh, you know, it's, it's an incoherent idea to begin with. So people throw this out there without really thinking through what it means. And that's one of the problems with fighting it is you try to pin it down and it's very hard to pin down. It's just this aspiration that, that certain managers have that they, that they think that's what Facebook did. And, uh, yeah, well, Facebook has had a lot of problems with their automation. In fact, um, they're being investigated by Congress and lots of people are angry with Facebook because they removed the human element from Facebook, because you can't get tech support if you use Facebook. That's why I'm not a Facebook user. I technically have a Facebook account, but I have no friends. I have given them no information. I only have a Facebook account so I can see other people's Facebook pages that I sometimes need to see. But I have a moral objection to Facebook because if anything goes wrong with Facebook, you don't get any help. There's no one you can talk to. No one at Facebook will talk to you. And that's because of their whole business model, which is automate everything. And I find that deeply creepy. Um, so what do these people even mean when they're talking about automate everything? They've never seen it. And will they, And how do they know it's going to be better? How do they know it's not going to miss a lot of bugs? So my, so my general reply to them is you're going to miss a lot of bugs. There's a lot of problems that I don't know how to automate finding these problems, but I know how to find the problems. Well, there's and another, there's another aspect them? of this. Is, that, I think the problem is that when they look at what developers are doing, they, they have a sort of recognition that what developers are doing is sort of complicated and mind-oriented stuff and design-oriented stuff. So they don't bring up the idea of automated the programming very much, uh, automating the programming very much. The trouble is 
that testers keep talking about testing in terms of test cases and test scripts and things that are uh, uh, conceivably automatable when all you're thinking about is data entry. What's getting automated? That's when true. When people are talking about That's automated true. everything, they're talking about automating the fricking data entry. But data entry isn't what we do as testers, except as a means to an end, which is getting data into the product to uh, uh, make the product behave so that we can observe it and analyze it. But are they going to automate the observation? Are they going to automate the analysis of it? No, of course not. But testers step into this trap all the time. And as a craft, we, who speak a little bit more articulately about it, and that would include everybody in this uh, uh, call on that, need to help bootstrap the rest of the craft. And at that means that uh, uh, James and Roman and uh, uh, Hype and, and uh, all those uh, people who participate in, in online forums in any way, we need your help. We need everybody else who's on this call to be pitching in and going to LinkedIn and going to uh, um, the uh, online forums for testing and going to people's blogs and trying to talk this foolishness down. I think that yeah. really nicely disconnects with the topic of today's uh, meeting because today's meetup is experiential testing. Yeah. An experience, yeah. as you as you described at the beginning, it's not something you can automate because that's my right. experience, my personal experience, experience of of any other testers, which will be different, right? Yeah. So, so that's something we you cannot um, automate. Uh, Martin, would you like to follow up on that one, or or can we move to the next one? Yeah, actually, that was a tricky question, and I didn't expect a specific answer, but still I I had to ask it, because uh, uh, th this issue is kind of uh, well-known, and everyone has to argue with business uh, or some stakeholders from time to time, and yet still uh, there is this common misunderstanding about uh, automating everything or automating nothing or going into some extremes. Yeah, yeah. you, you mentioned one, uh, one great thing, Martin, because uh, uh, Michael, James, I think we shouldn't go into extreme, right? Uh, how you describe uh, your, your, your answer, I think we, we, we might go into the second extreme, that uh, testers are, uh, should do everything uh, without automation, right? So and they shouldn't, right? How do you, how do you who said it? that? How do you avoid that? Going to extremes? How do we, what's the general theory of not going to extremes? You know this if you drive a car. Uh, you can ask yourself when you're driving a car, should I steer to the right or should I steer to the left? And the answer isn't always steer to the left or the answer isn't always steer to the right. Um, the answer is, uh, steer appropriately so that you stay on the road and don't hit anything. <laughs> so what's the key thing about not going to extremes? Having a sober driver who is in control of the vehicle. Now I once got angry when I was driving and I got so angry that I had experienced an effect I have only experienced once in my life, which was that moment, which is I lost the ability uh, to turn uh, right. I, I could not turn to the right. I could only turn left for about 10 minutes. 
Um, I realize now I probably had experienced a stroke. I mean, it was something like that. Uh, but uh, it was very strange. So in that sense, I was at that moment an unsafe driver who could only go to extremes. Uh, and I had to calm down so that I regained my ability to do all the things and make all the choices that I need to make as a safe driver instead of just some choices. Now, uh, I, I also have another reaction to that, Adam, which is, wait a second, who actually said that the alternative to automating everything is automating nothing? What's up with that? No, I maybe went too, 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 too far, right? But, but uh, no, the, way how, extreme. The, 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 the way how you passionately speak about testing and how I actually also speak about testing with, with, with passion, uh, that this is a craft, this is a purely uh, human experience and we, we need the, the creativity of human mind and, and so on and so in, in, to put that into this experience. Somebody listening this from outside can think that, okay, we don't need automation at all, right? Because we, the tester is essential, right? And, and uh, I believe that, I firmly believe that, uh, that automation can help us in doing our, our craft. But guys, uh, we are uh, really close to the end and I think we will even extend, if it's okay with you, to have the last question. Um, and uh, it will be a good closing question for the whole session. Uh, could you suggest any three most important books that influence you on your testing? That question is from uh, from uh, Piotr. Uh, Michael have disappeared, so maybe we can... Yeah, I've, uh, I get to... I have so many books, but... I will, it cannot I'll, be yours. I, I can it cannot be yours, James. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you, i predict what Michael will say. Um, a book that has profoundly influenced Michael and I in the last few years is called Tacit uh, and Explicit Knowledge by Harry Collins. It uh, is, uh, uh, it changed how we taught our class. It changed how we see the world. Another book that was very influential on us and taught us about a concept called legibility is called Seeing Like a State. It's a weird title, Seeing Like a State. And that book is all about how nation states try to implement policies to control their people and then they end up completely not controlling them. <laughs> Everything's gonna gets out of control, and it's it's the idea of legibility, um, which uh, uh, which is all about um, uh, what is it that makes something uh, viewable and seeable and understandable. Yeah, Hillary beat you to it, man. Um, one other book uh, that I would recommend, which is particularly related to experiential testing. Uh, is the book called uh, Tempo by Venkatesh Rao. Uh, and by the way, Venkatesh Rao's website, Ribbon Farm, is one of the most insightful blogs. It, it, it is a mind-blowing blog. Uh, I, I, uh, I fear to read Venkatesh Rao's blog posts because I know if I read it, I'm going to be changed. And... Uh, and I don't know, I can't predict how I'm going to be changed, but his ideas cause a chemical reaction in my brain, which modifies my brain structure. And, uh, and so not many blog, bloggers can do that. Uh, but he does these really uh, interesting philosophical posts about the nature of systems and social reality 
And actually, I learned about legibility first from reading a post in uh, Venkatesh Rao's on Venkatesh Rao's Ribbon Farm blog. So those are like those three books I would suggest. What would you suggest, Michael, for your three books that influence? My three books: uh, Perfect Software, Another Illusions About Testing. Oh, Lessons how prosaic! Learned. I know. Lessons learned in software testing. Uh, yawn. But yeah, I wrote yeah. that one. All right. Yeah. So you wrote it. I, I didn't think you'd get too upset about it. Um, I think this one is fascinating. The Shape What's of that? Actions by Harry Collins. Oh, I guessed you were going to say tacit and explicit knowledge. Yeah, Shape of Actions is really great too. Tacit okay. and Shape of knowledge action. is right here. There's that one. But also from Harry's library, this is an amazing book. The What's Gollum. That? Oh, The Gollum, yeah. And The Gollum at Large. These are... Uh, uh, two books, in fact, from uh, Harry Seth. Now I have to refile. The, the Gollum is a book that's all about how uh, it's the the myth of scientific reproducibility. It's kind of a myth. It turns out that 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 in formal scientific experiments that are supposed to be reproducible, there's a lot of controversy about reproducing them. And if one scientist can't reproduce the work of another scientist, they're often just accused of being incompetent. Oh, you don't know how to raise rats the way I do, so that's why your experiment didn't work. So it turns out there's a lot of social construction and credibility maintenance in actual hard science work, which is exactly the truth in testing as well. Testing is highly, highly social, and you need to develop your credibility if you want to get anywhere as a tester. And because testing as a craft hasn't worked very hard, on, on, on developing its credibility, we are bullied by every other part of the engineering process. Everybody bullies testing. Everybody thinks they know how to test. Everybody thinks testers should write test cases. People who don't know anything about testing have strong opinions about testing. And the only way to solve that, I think, is by removing the vacuum, by becoming powerful thinkers ourselves and become good at explaining our work. Um, oh, um, one more book, though, that we haven't mentioned, which I have often described as the fundamental textbook of software testing. It's a difficult book to read, but it changed the structure of my brain. And, uh, and that is um, Introduction to General Systems Thinking by uh, Gerald Boynberg. Thank you guys for that. I will uh, try to summarize all of these books later on on the meetup page. So uh, to all participants that were signing to, for today's meeting, I will uh, send an email or, or post it in a comment at the summary of all of the books that you, you mentioned, guys. Uh, if I will have any problems, I'll just reach you. Yes, Michael, you want to say something? Yeah, there's something I'd like to mention from the Gollum at large, the, the, uh, the Harry Collins book, because it is... Uh, central to the idea of what experiential testing is all about. Um, it, it, in the middle of the book, uh, right around page 64, um, Harry talks about, and it's actually Harry and Trevor Pinch, who's the co-author of the book. Um, one of the things that confuses us about the way we're exposed to science is that it's presented following the conventions of the demonstration or the display. Now, this is a lot like checking. 
in the sense of uh, something that can be done algorithmically to demonstrate that the product works. Uh, checking and demonstration have a lot in common with one another. They're not exactly the same. But um, if we're not specialists, we learn about science firstly through stage-managed demonstrations at school, and secondly through demonstrations come displays on television. This is one of the means by which we think that the characteristic feature of scientific tests is that they always have clear outcomes. Yeah. Um, a demonstration or display is something that is properly set before the lay public precisely because its appearance is meant to convey an unambiguous message to the senses, the message that we are told to take from it. But the significance of an experiment can be accessed only by experts. It is this feature of experiment that this book is trying to make clear. Um, it's important that demonstration and display on the one hand and experiment on the other are not mistaken for one another. Boy, that gets to the heart of what we're trying to do as testers, not as people who are there to confirm that the product does what it's supposed to do, to demonstrate that the product does what it's supposed to do. As testers, we are there to learn about all kinds of things that can happen with the product not done in this carefully stage managed kind of display that uh, some people call tests, but they're not really tests. They're demonstrations that the product can do something. There's a big difference between can work and will work. And uh, uh, that passage in this book speaks to that. And by the way, as I'm reading it, I notice that there's a typo in it too. It says, uh, can only be accessed be experts, and they meant by experts. Finding That's an experiential thing, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm reading the book again, and I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. So there you Thank go. Thank you. Thank you for so, that. Uh, so I, are we out of time? Are we done? Yes, yes, we are out of time. I just last All right, few, well, thanks few... for having us. It's, uh, Thank you, Adam. Again, this, is, this is totally new material for us. We have not publicly done a talk on this before, so... When you see us do a talk, it'll be more refined and, and we'll have worked out a lot of these ideas more. But we think this is important. There's an enormous Zoom chat here, too. I hadn't noticed that. Yes, uh, a lot of people have, uh, have had even discussion there. Uh, I just wanted to throw one more thing around a books, uh, one which Michael recommended to me some time ago. It's uh, Ex Explore It, and it's a book that also around uh, this uh, experiential testing because it, might, it, it showed to me how big the whole domain is, right? How many things that you can consider during testing, which I can also recommend. Thank you, guys. Uh, any last words? Uh, we've got uh, uh, RST classes uh, uh, coming up. Uh, you can see that on rapid-software-testing.com. Uh, uh, say hello to us. This class, or this, it's not a class, this um, uh, meetup comes with lifetime free technical support from both uh, James and me. We want to continue this conversation with you uh, in the Rapid Software Testing Slack forum. Uh, in our emails, on our blogs, uh, uh, please uh, uh, engage with us. We, we, we want your thoughts and your ideas and your, your help. Can I sign in? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here. Every time I get to interact with people in this kind of thing, it moves the thinking ahead. This is how we build community. Thank you.
Thank you uh, a lot. Uh, guys, last word from me, if you want to support the, the whole Midcast, because right now I'm financing everything from my own pocket. So if you want to support me, you can join me on Patreon. I just created the, the account some, some time ago, so, so you can join me there. Uh, also, I would like to thank uh, um, the sponsor, because today we had a company that sponsored the license um, of, of, uh, of our meetup. Um, so QA uh, Craft for Jira, it's a plugin for Jira. They help us to be in a such a uh, so large audience. Uh, thank you all of uh, all for participation, and see you next time. Thank you. Mm -hmm.